0: Hello and welcome to D2C Podcast, I'm Eric Dick. Today we're talking brand building with the internet's marketing director, Oren John. Oren is one of my favorite content creators on Instagram, Twitter, TikTok and more under the handle Oren Meets World where he creates videos that cover the intersection of high fashion brand creation and the business of apparel. Today's talk is a masterclass on premium branding and what it takes to generate social momentum for today's brands. You'll learn why specialized niche apparel and fashion products are overtaking the legacy players in the D2C space, why you should think about your influencer creator strategy like a GM would a sports team, and we go in-depth on Oren's strategies for building his own brand, along with the most detailed and valuable answer we've ever gotten to the how would you spend 50K to grow your brand question, so make sure you stick around for that break out the Rick Owens cutlery or in serving up premium
1: insights on this week's D2C podcast. Now on with the show. Big brands play by the small brands rules now. If you're a massive brand, you go, oh, I, I can post on social media once or twice a day. Like, no, that's what smaller brands have to do. If you have the budget, you can have as many accounts as you want. There can be 15 Reebok accounts that are popping out there. And you can be posting on, if you have a million followers, millions of followers as one of those brands, it doesn't hurt you to be posting as long as it's consistent, like four times a day if the content's good. I just think they're playing by like someone else's rule book. I'm like, you don't need to play by that rule book. You have more resources, you have more content. You're spending all these teams, these marketing dollars to put out one social post a day is like almost criminally dumb on the part of most of these large organizations from a social strategy. And so I think that as soon as some people figure that out, the whole landscape is gonna shift.
0: If you haven't yet used Motion, the creative analytics platform used by top e-com and D2C brands like Fiori, True Classic, The Farmer's Dog, Hexclad, and hundreds more to ship winning ads, here's why you should try it out. Everyone knows that the right creative is the number one lever for success with paid ads. That's how you make money. But consistently shipping new winning creative, you're gonna need your media buyers and your creative teams on the same page. Right now, you're probably spending hours tiring away going back and forth between Google Sheets and your ad platforms and tools and then spending even more time plugging it all into different decks for the rest of your team. In a perfect world, you could have an elegant way to combine visual assets and performance data so media buyers can save time and creative teams can get the details they need to make great ads all in one place. And that's where Motion comes in. In seconds, you can build powerful visual reports using data from your ad accounts. You can monitor your performance metrics and see your visual assets in the same platform. No need to go back and forth across multiple apps. You'll finally have media buyers and creative teams working together to create and scale your next big winner. If you're ready to learn how the best D2C and e-commerce brands use Motion to ship winning meta TikTok and YouTube ads, book a demo today or start a free trial at motionapp.com DTC. Even better, Motion offers a monthly subscription plan so you can dodge those annoying annual contracts get 50% off your first month when you use the link motionapp.com slash DTC on sign up. Oren, welcome to the DTC podcast. Could you just start by giving me a summary of your hero's journey towards becoming the internet's marketing director?
1: (laughs) All right, no, sure thing. So uh, I guess, yeah, I started my career as a designer. Uh, I'm a little bit older than I look in my videos. I'm, I'm 38, but I was a designer for the first four or five years of my career in, in hospitality. So I worked for restaurant groups um, and then I worked in kind of like the entertainment industry. Uh, and then I became a designer and creative director at an agency that worked mainly in uh, beverage, liquor. We had like Red Bull, Great Goose, Ciroc as clients, and then um, did events all over Sundance, the Super Bowl, Ultra, you know, Miami Art Week, that kind of thing. After that, I moved into technology uh, and I was a you know, worked in marketing and became eventually a director of marketing in the outdoors industry. So selling products into you know, Bass Pro, Dick's, Cabela's, uh, small sporting goods stores, then translated over into the consumer drone industry, uh, became a VP of marketing there, selling consumer drones into big box retail. Uh, started a business with some friends after that, a contract engineering agency called called Gwyn Partners that a friend of mine founded and two other friends of mine and I are, are, are partners in that has done about a 40 person engineering firm. And that is uh, you know, still exists today. And then, you know, went and was the, the president of a uh, public company kind of roll up here in, in California. Uh, so to work on CPG products. And then now I yeah, advise and work with tons of different brands, um, have you know, worked with all, all kinds of people across fashion industry, CPG industry, electronics, and started being a creator about 18 months ago to uh, put out whatever I've learned on the Internet so other people can learn from me.
0: Which is where I discovered you, uh, and and Colin, who you're also doing some some cool education stuff with uh, with him that I want to chat about. Quite quite an interesting eclectic background. I,
1: don't know, I think that's the fun part of the journey, right? Is especially nowadays where you can be a designer for X amount of time, and you can do marketing for a period, and then you see the light in, in entrepreneurship or we move to sales. And I think that, that combination of things is what makes people later in their careers now interesting versus generations where everyone worked at one job forever. There's
0: so many different angles to take this conversation. There's, I, you know, everyone in, in, in the D2C audience is interested in probably your perspective, first of all, on like on big trends in the space, big big sort of trends you're seeing in the space. Maybe let, let's start with that. Let's start on the brand side. What are some big things that you think are are coming in in 2024 versus things that are kind of on their way out?
1: So I think something we're going to see much more of is people just making really specialized premium things in niches and then niche products continuing to overtake large products. I think this has been the case for a while, but we've seen it not happen in every industry. I look at this like people are more likely, I feel like, discerning customers to buy on-running shoes or Hoka shoes for running than they are you know, Nike running shoes. or are more likely to buy from a specialist sunglass company than a company that also happens to make sunglasses. We're seeing all these specialist brands Elevating in their particular use cases and being able to tell a more compelling story to their consumers. So, I think that trend is definitely going to continue. I think the trend of kind of pure D2C, like we just do e commerce, is definitely kind of in its, its olden days, essentially, where now it's like brands are successful, are very omni channel. They have this combination of you sell online in your Shopify, but you're also on either Amazon or TikTok shop. You also have some retail, you're moving into retail faster than you would prior, and you're doing pop up shops and experimenting with own retail. Like a lot of these emerging brands are are truly omnichannel. And I think that's another kind of interesting trend for that. Uh, and then the creator brands kind of probably one of the biggest ones where people who are building an audience first and saying, Hey, I'm gonna build this audience and leverage it and using a brand, or I'm gonna attach to someone who has an audience to help build this brand because that's a yeah, you know, the best and most affordable way to storytell compared to the kind of things you were able to do in prior generations.
0: And you were saying, uh, you know, this this idea of of these niche businesses going and it all that also filters down to your your commentary on like the kind of creative that you're really drawn to out there. I've seen you just recently posting a little bit about like artisan creative. And it's funny, like I look back on how much of my TikTok feed I'm w- looking at people like crafting things and, you know, in like short filter, you know, short, short, short focus videos and quick cuts. Talk a little bit about the, you know, how you see those kinds of brands trending in the creative space as well.
1: Yeah. And so I think, well, right now, um, every single thing is based around personality and narrative. So the kind of content that captivates people isn't look at this visual thing or sell me this funny concept, whatever it is. It's how do I tell some level of story? And then more importantly, how does that story last beyond one video? I think now you see thousands and tens of thousands of people that have mastered the art of getting 15 seconds of attention. And and that is something where if you don't have that skill set, you're behind the curve. Then it's a matter of how do you become, make that into a repeatable narrative where people want to follow in on that journey or recognize you in that journey, whether you're a brand or a creator or, you know, in a creative, whatever that may be. And so it's tying that arc together and establishing things like characters and sets and enemies and events. And I think that's how brand stories and creative stories kind of have to work now. It's kind of working through those arcs telling that on social media, translating it into real life and using all these different mediums to kind of create this really interesting canvas to tell a brand story on.
0: Super interesting. I I just did a podcast with a sponsor that that specializes in media mix analysis. And they they, you know, I come from this world of like hardcore performance marketing where Facebook is top of funnel. Meta ads are top of funnel in my world because you are because that's where you're getting new customers from. In this guy's world, he'd come from this place where you're talking about TV and all different kinds of brand integrations and stuff. He's like, Facebook isn't, you know, Facebook kind of compresses the funnel right away and kind of forces you into a really sort of transactional type relationship. But I'm interested, like, when you talk about these like three-dimensional, you know, stories that brands want to build, how do you perceive of doing that in you know, in the commerce environment, like it's hard to do in a Facebook ad necessarily. How do you think of top of funnel?
1: Yeah. And so I think, uh, well, I agree with whoever put the media mix out there. I mean, then that conversation in that social media advertising is compressing a segment of the funnel for for the most part. But, you know, true social media is that follows that same exact kind of funnel narrative. And I look at a lot of things as organic being the primary driver right now for the vast majority of brands, you will get more bang for your buck organic than you will with paid, and paid just replaces whatever scale you can't get with organic. And so when you look at that storytelling, you look at your top of funnel, you say, okay, if I can get people interested in this brand, if I can get your email address, if I can get you to to like the page, if I can get you in the retargeting group, then I need to be able to educate you with those stories. But I think when you look at it from an ad perspective, telling a founder story ad is much more starting a user journey where they might develop affinity than telling a super product focused ad, right? And I think that if you are the kind of brand that is telling an in-depth story, Leading with those personalities, whether it's influencers in your marketing or influencers in your campaign, your founders, the characters in your brand story, like the people that represent you on social media, et cetera, like that needs to be thought of throughout the funnel, because every one of those things you present is an opportunity to develop a rapport with the person watching it so that when they come back, they have you know some level of affinity with your brand. And I just think that weaving those storylines into every part of your campaigns, from your website to your email lists, to your advertising, to what you do organically is how brands need to think. Like that narrative spans everything. And that can translate even into the product and what's in the packaging and, you know, additions and, you know, who signs the card in the manual, whatever it ends up being. It's like really getting a thorough brand story, which we actually have the opportunity to do because, you know, we have so many other things now that tech has helped replace or make simpler that really it's about focusing on that, consumer UX, that product UX, and how to tell those stories to help differentiate these brands.
0: It makes me just think of Tab's chocolate. I haven't had all, I haven't chatted with Oliver in a while, but just in that very product, the the whole story of like how you use it is built into the form of that product. So it's, you know, two pieces of chocolate you break apart for whatever encounter you're you're hoping to have, but it's that kind of strategy that's going to win in 2024. I feel like it's stuff where you've got things baked right into the product level.
1: Exactly. We're kind of everything is everything is embedded and and you and look and it doesn't take much more than a whiteboard to work through that with teams to start thinking about what the ideas are we could incorporate and like roll those changes into how you look at your brand. When did
0: you decide in the, in your uh, your past here that you wanted to really double down on your personal brand and start becoming the internet's creative director? What was that process like?
1: Uh, and so I had always helped other people build personal brands. I'd had some clientele who were authors or I'd always been like an operator next to a more charismatic person inside the businesses I was in. And that's the role I liked. And at some point, you kind of look at that and you go, you know, man, I should have really been building all that for me. <laughs> um, but I honestly decided that because I was going to go get back into marketing. In the previous org I was in, I was the president. I, re- I ran the majority of the company. I had 200 plus employees. I was super operational. I was dealing with distribution, manufacturing, product development, sales. And I was like, all right, that was interesting. I want to get back to marketing, which I enjoy. And I realized that I just wasn't as aware. I didn't know how media moved on Instagram and TikTok. And one of the biggest things I dread is being either an executive in marketing or being a founder that doesn't understand, You know, I can't manage the marketing people or understand like the metrics they're trying to do. So I was like, all right, I'm gonna try this myself and worked out on TikTok, uh, made a hundred terrible videos and wasn't really worried about it. no one really saw it and then started to get good. And I was really just making videos about a whole number of things. And then um, my, my manager had come up with the, the tagline, kind of the internet's creative director. Uh, at the time, we were kind of workshopping some stuff. There's a creator, her name is Girlboss Town, who's the internet's agent, um, and kind of looks at things from that lens. And I was like, all right, cool. Like, What's the lens that I can bring on, the things I talk about? Um, but really, I leaned into it deeper than I thought I would because just how well it went. And then also seeing how it allows you to navigate your creative and career once you have that following. Because now, If I'm in a meeting with anyone in marketing department, say I'm in the marketing department, a major retailer, like the chance that at least one person around that table knows me and my content is really high. And it allows me to be a more established expert in those conversations. It allows me to more easily open other doors. Obviously, it's a revenue generator. And then now I see it as a platform to be able to launch whatever I want for the rest of my life, right? Because I'm thinking about it, not just the followers I have today and those networks change, but it's built a massive email list. It's continuing over into people that maybe the social media fades away, but my face being associated with it has just a recognition level that will last for a while. And it's been a really captivating change in my life in only about 18 months and you're you're really blending B2B and B2C as
0: well right because you probably you have a lot of people looking at you from the brand and e-commerce perspective and then you have probably a lot of people looking at like looking at you from the product perspective as well from the brands that you're articulating and the cool things you're talking about
1: yeah i try to have that mix where i look at it like um i feel like there's a certain type of person who's a, a product person and my my email list used to be named product people kind of for that reason where They enjoy brands. They enjoy these things. They enjoy those consumer experiences. They enjoy discovery. And I'm one of those people. And so I want to make content that brings us together as a a community. But I also find that those people, no matter what they're doing in their career, what would they work at, you end up kind of in a, okay, you're in a marketing role or a creative role, or at some point you want to start your own business. And so it all ties into this greater concept of the things that I talk about, which a lot is just like how to have an interesting brand, how to have a slightly more entrepreneurial life. How to take that extra little bit of creative intention with everything you do, from a photo shoot to how you style your house to what you choose for the water bottle that you're using every day.
0: I think one of the themes that I see in your content is you focus a lot on premium brands. Which, just given the the environment, the macroeconomic environment, and and just what's what's most interesting, uh, I see that as being a really good approach. What what do you think? What are what's your sort of philosophy of of creating a premium brand in 2024?
1: Yeah, well, what's been interesting is uh, I've, I've talked a decent about, about this on on content, but something that really fascinates me is that one of the elements of luxury, you know, uh, I used to differentiate between designer brands and luxury brands. A designer brand is something that was designed with intention that is of, of high quality, but that is, uh, but doesn't have time behind it. It might be newer, right? It's, it's something that is kind of created in its moment. And then if you have, if you consistently perform with that level of quality and design and Uh, consumer demand over time and you apply that time variable, it can become luxury. And that is uh, something that was the case forever, right? Where if you truly want to be a more premium or luxury brand, it had to come from that heritage and from that consistency over time. And what's been fascinating to me is companies that felt like have hacked that over the last few years by a, um, pl- and like basically coming out of the gate with super strong products, having the right brand built around them so that they're almost immediately in the luxury space. And I've talked about Flamingo Estate is a good one where they use the quality of what they put out and the quality of their product and the quality of their art direction, um, et cetera. And the actual, the fact they based their brand around a physical location that exists in the world that has this heritage feel to kind of jump their way into being a, a fast kind of a, uh, Player inside what feels like it could have been around for 20, 30 years. And so there's all these people kind of jumping into that space. And I'm fascinated with premium because I also feel a lot of legacy luxury and, pre- and premium price points are kind of going away. And I think that's one of these other trends we can talk a bit into is that you basically have now ultra expensive stuff. You know, let's. Take Louis Vuitton as a just to grab a quick example out there, where people have kind of raised their price now to the extreme to be able to buy this brand quality. And then you have the full cheap end, the your your Sheens, your Timus, your Amazon stuff, where you're just buying whatever it is from cost-conscious. And the cons- most consumers don't really live between either two of those. And I feel like they're growing less aspirational to try to get to that luxury end of it. There is less people like kind of yearning once they get it but especially once you have a taste of it for I need to have a full Louis Vuitton set or I need to go buy the most expensive this or that. Instead, they're looking for what in the mid range has a story that speaks specifically to me. And I think that's where the, all the brands that we're seeing some level of success of kind of live in that, where maybe it's slightly more expensive than your average thing. But like Stanley's a great example where like, all right, it's kind of it's cheaper than Yeti. You know, like it's not at the top of the, the price points in the middle, but it tells a story that appeals to you. Um, there's luggage like Bass or a few of these others where you just kind of find these brands that live in that space. And that's really fascinating to me because I feel like that just can take it can give people a better experience. And it's going to take all of this revenue from this existing premium luxury that doesn't really justify its own price point anymore.
0: Super interesting. Do you think there are any of those legacy brands, obviously, like they're still crushing it, but are there any that are particular, any that you see out there as you go that are really like embracing the the modern ethos better than maybe some of the others?
1: Uh, In terms of like how those brands are are functioning, that's an interesting one. Um, You know, I feel like a lot of them are very caught in their own time. That's one I have to, uh, off, off the top of my head, nothing Nothing pops up quite right. And it's also, there's also a difference between like super long-term heritage brands and not. But, um, you know, I've always felt Porsche does a good job of kind of maintaining their level of interesting relevancy and luxury, despite what generation it's in and feeling like it's the right buy. And that's one I thought has been good a product that stands out. Yeah. And, and we were, you mentioned Hoka earlier to me, they're such
0: a, they're another example of some They're not exactly a luxury product, but they're definitely a very high premium product. And for them to have built whatever it is like a $4 billion business in, in a, just under 10 years is, is pretty wild. What do you think they did so right?
1: Again, That's down to user experience, right? Where it's like, it's so, it's so good once you try it that, you want to recommend it, and you want to live in it. Like I first heard of Hoka because it was like a, it was like a therapy shoe my father was wearing, right? And then, then when you get actual runners being like, "Hey, this is the most comfortable it's been in my life," or when you start running and you're like, "What do you recommend?" to a more serious person, they're like, "Oh, you need to get this thing," and like, and that is a uh, which I feel is very different than the how on running kind of took off because Hoka's are kind of by nature not great looking, and so it purely came down to, to that experience. And I think at some point, some of their looks and, and things have got their little mainstream appeal moments. Um, But all the brands, whether it's uh, like Solomon's another one where that's a functional shoe and it happens to look great. And so they kind of get the best of both worlds when it got popular. But Om was a little different because it had that same you know, user experience, not quite to the same level. You're not having your dream running experience in on. Some people are, might be better than the other, whatever. But it also had that like cultural moment where it looked good enough, it was appealing enough, people saw the logo, it was on the right people, that it also just had this kind of mainstream jump that happened in a different way than Hoka. But yeah, I think the easiest way to hack that is to really create an amazing product. And get Roger
0: Federer to wear it, generally. That's that's the other great aspect there. And then you had mentioned a tweet that you talked about recently, this brings it back, I think, to how you you sort of think about your whole marketing you know uh, department in terms of this narrative idea. You mentioned that people should be thinking more about their influencer partnerships as sports teams. Can you flesh out that analogy for the
1: audience? Yeah, so I feel like we've got we've hit this point now where like one off the, the one-off influencer economy is uh not set up with the incentives, right? Right? Like influencers are making more than the value they're pushing on a per post basis in most cases, and the rates are essentially set. And also a one-off thing is like, it's gonna be very hard to measure the ROI of something you're doing with an influencer on how many clicks can they send one time. And instead it's like, their skill is really, compared to a brand, being able to get attention on the internet to a thing consistently over time. And they're probably better at that within their niche or to their audience than the brand will be. And the brand would have to pay extra to come across inauthentic to do that via advertising. And so saying, hey, you can have a creator that works with you for six months or a year, and they are incentivized to promote it across all the things they do and all, and not being thinking, oh, I just signed up for this ad, or they just got that one thing in the contract and make sure it's a part of their life and a part of their lifestyle is more natural to their audience, more natural for the creator, gives it aligns incentives better. And then the idea of a team that becomes really important is the ability to have like stars, the ability to vet, you know, uh, people and then put them on like a higher level on the team later on. And most importantly, to have them work together. That's the thing I think when we look at trends and in influencer marketing is right now it's like, you go do a campaign, you get 50 influencers, they all do their posts in the X amount of time and they direct traffic to Y. Whatever, instead of okay, let's actually get some of these guys to work together over time and like how can they create content? How can they establish narratives like as a group? Uh, and then are they gonna then take that into different mediums? And I think that's where we're gonna see some really interesting things because that collaborative nature of stuff is is naturally where creating is going anyway. And it ties into both that concept of like your influencers are a team and your brand story is like a universe, right? And it's a it's a TV show and it has its events and it's collaborators, and those people are characters in that story.
0: I like that. It's something we're actually talking about with the newsletter is sort of trying to personalize. You know, we've, we've built the D2C newsletter as this sort of like monolith. Like it's 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 not one person. I'm on the podcast, obviously. But we want to try to influence more or introduce more personality into the reader's journey. Uh, and so that's something we're talking a lot about and something I could see brands getting a ton of benefit from. Yeah, one
1: well, like recurring segments is good, too. Like I'm on a podcast called uh, Marketing Examined where I come on like once a month or I think it's, and it's called something else now, but it's from the guys who do Marketing Examine. And it's like, you have like a recurring feature, right? Just like you have uh, interviews in a newsletter or whatever it is. Like, how do you bring those characters in in some kind of natural way? Same thing applies to a podcast or even your personal social media. I look at world building as the fact you associated me with like, Colin Landforce or like when people start to find out that like Schwinnabego and I are boys or like, again, people start to understand, oh, this is a world out there and these people are all connected.
0: Makes me want to know who Schwinnabego is. I'm going to have to Google that because that's a between Landforce and Schwinnabego. You have a lot of good friends with good Spang-ness. names. Strong names. Uh, Well, let's talk about Landforce a little bit uh, because I'm signed up for, I don't know if this is going to get out in time for this cohort, but I know you'll probably do it again in the future, but I'm excited to be part of uh, Cut30. Talk
1: a little bit about how that came about. Yeah. So this was an idea from uh, Alex Garcia who runs marketing exam and was like, hey, I think there should be a a place for people to really focus and dive in for 30 days on short form video the way there is on any number of other, you know, there's programs like that that exist all over. And he had talked to Colin and I about it, uh, just because we have different skill sets and grown in different ways. And like Alex has built social media for brands. I built a pretty big personal social media. Uh, Colin's built a very nice niche social media. And so we said, hey, let's can we create a curriculum where people can over 30 days become better at short form video if they're existing creator or start if they're new. And what we noticed is especially for me, like I mentioned at the beginning, I made a hundred terrible videos before any of mine were any good. And they were bad. And I didn't have any friends doing it to give me any advice. And then now I have group chats with other huge creators who are, and we're all helping each other and like feedbacking each other. And that's invaluable. And we just wanted to kind of recreate a version of that experience and to be able to answer all those questions for people in a short uh, short while. And actually it's gone really well. So we've done two cohorts so far, third starts again, probably after this comes out, but here in about a week or so. And we just have like a lot of people who just couldn't start start. We've had a lot of existing creators try new things and kind of blow up. Um, we've had some people like go from you know zero to 10K, zero to 20K kind of thing, like in that 30 days, which is fun. Um, but really, it's just about like getting that skill set. Right. And there's no better way to get that skill set than to do it. And then the best way to get it is like doing that while you're getting real time feedback from people that know what they're doing and answering all your questions along the way. And then you have that clock in the back of your head being like, I need to figure this out because, you know, this is going to be over in 24 days or whatever. And uh, uh, it's been really fun. And we're continuing it on. We got maybe like 50 to 100 people coming in each one of these. And I've met some really interesting folks. It's been a really interesting time.
0: What kind of people are taking it? Is it, is it, is it a full spectrum of brand owners and people that just want to build their personal brand?
1: Yeah, it's, it's all over. So it's basically it's yeah. people that are. Uh, so we have some big existing creators who just like want another, you know, want more feedback or want to try some new things and learn that. That's been like a niche that We didn't lean into marketing, too, but we've ended up getting more people in that than we thought. Uh, a lot of people with who are want to start a brand or how who started the brand and aren't getting much attention and who are like, okay, we need to figure this out. And uh, yeah. And then people who like own a brand and are trying to figure out how they manage their teams. They just want to know enough about it. To my point, they just want to be like, how, what does it actually take to make a good TikTok, Or what does it take to make, you know, how do I use cap cut? Cause then they can actually make better decisions with their team. Yeah.
0: I, I, that's one of the things I'm super excited is just how to actually do it. That's, and I'm, I'm just curious, like when you make one of your videos, how much of a script do you have ahead of time?
1: Yeah. And so I started out, I would do bullets. Where I would be like, cool, I'm gonna do uh, I have a hook that catches people's attention. I have topic one, two, three, and I have an outro typically. And I would write those bullet points and I would just wing it. And I did that for probably till I got to like hundred thousand followers on TikTok and Instagram. Now I write everything completely out, word for like word for word, not like fully scripted. And so the recording process is really easy. Like I'll write a script. Every script is a line. Each line I go make a graphic for in Canva, which I'm just literally just grabbing a photo and formatting it so it looks nice. And then I just read it on the green screen in CapCut and it takes 10 minutes. And so it's like very quick when you do that. And that ended up being a better workflow for me than kind of winging it and being like, oh, I should change that clip or oh, I didn't say the right thing, let me try this again. Um, and, and yeah, and I think everyone's journey is a little bit more different and that's what we kind of work through in there. It's like, all right, are you a bullet points person or are you a script person? Here's a good example. Here's exercises to actually do it. Like one exercise I'll share here that's really valuable is of like, if you're making videos and they're not, not, going, not doing well, I usually recommend find someone in your niche, get one of their videos that did well recently and just write it out, or like word for word. When do they switch the graphic? What do they say in this phrase? How many words is it? What do they say in that phrase? And then kind of identify it. Like, what's a hook? What's a positive sign? What's this? What's that? You know, like, and then re- literally rewrite it with a new topic in the same exact format, same length of the clips you know, the joke is here and the intro is here and then see if that performs. And what we've seen is like 90% of the time, they'll then make a great video. And so there's some little things like that that just like someone needs to guide you through it, like you would in any education or homework exercise. So you can be like, oh, this is a technique I now have. If I need to have a banger video, I'm gonna go use a format from somebody else and, and put my own spin on it. My question is: Do you actually read? Because one of the things,
0: like I find when I have a script, I find myself I come across less authentic because I'm because I'm
1: reading. Or do you try well, to, stanzas? Do you try to memorize it? How do how do you balance that? Yeah, so it's one line, it's line by line, right? So the way green screen works in CapCut, which is yeah. the app I, that most people use to do this, is you record it one clip at a time. So I'll put a graphic up. Say I'm talking about suitcases. First graphic will be a picture of Toomey or whatever, and I will say the one phrase about Toomey, and it'll be like to me, blah, 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 didn't like this collab, did like that. I just say that one thing and I'll just look at my notes and basically memorize that. And if it's not word for word, whatever, but like I get the general gist and I'll do it. And then you switch the next graphic and do the next one. So you're not memorizing 60 seconds because I don't think I could do that every day in 10 minutes but you're literally just going line by line. And I'll have like my phone here, my laptop here and I'll be like, all right, cool, next one. Um, and it's it's really straightforward once you start doing it. I think that's what a lot of people don't realize. They think it takes all this production. And especially if you're kind of funny or witty in general, or if you've done a bunch of podcasting or talking where you're used to just saying shit, it's very easy to kind of start knocking these out. But then there's just a difference between knocking it out and making it great.
0: Yeah, I think so. And I think that's my biggest fear is 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 about not is that they won't be great. I think I think that that's a big thing that cr- kind of creators have, and you you overcame it by doing a hundred of them. But it's like I know I'm pretty good at podcasting. I can do this. This other thing. It's like I don't know if I'll be good at it, and I and I w- I worry about those first hundred on my ego, you know?
1: Yeah. And so one thing we recommend, and we have an exercise for this in there. Is there's a set of settings you can turn on in TikTok that make it basically make it so none of your contacts are ever going to see your videos. And so I recommend for anyone that has like the ego around it, which plenty of people do, totally normal. You can just. Just go run it. It's basically like running a burner, and then you figure it out and and like and that way, you're just going to be able to work through and work through your audience, and then you can take it over to Instagram or wherever you end up being to actually do to to go make the push you want to make that's
0: uh that's pretty smart. I wanted to talk a little bit because you sit in this amazing position of having worked with so many big brands, you're analyzing all these brands out there, and you're now actually building your own brand for launch. So can you talk a little bit about your thought process for how you conceived of uh, of the brand you're planning?
1: Uh, yeah, for sure. So I think we thought about it for a really long time, because it's one of those where I work on a ton of things, so I can't focus on a brand full time or even you know partial time. But also, I, people follow me for value, right? They don't follow me because I'm building a brand necessarily. And so I was like, how do I do something authentic that I want to do? And also, I don't want to do like creator merch. Like if I want to sell something, I don't want it to be average. And so the idea that we came up with was um, basically, it's almost an open source brand, at least on my side of it, where we're going to have a brand that gets marketed totally normally in its own right to its own people. But then in my part behind it, I'm explaining and detailing all the things that go into each product and how they're created and then just giving it away. And so I'm saying, hey, cool. Like one of the first things we're doing is belts. And I'm literally like, hey, here's exactly what we did. Here's all the options I had to choose from. Here's how why we chose this buckle versus that or this fabric versus this. And then if you want to go do your own, here's some resources that you can go use to do that exact thing. And I think that that is kind of naturally true to the kind of content that I make. So people are still getting that educational process. Well, also people are interested in it. They're learning enough and being engaged in the brand to go buy it. And then it's a brand that's all over. Like I'm not marrying it to like it's just it's just clothing or it's just interior objects or whatever. It's it's really something that's built out of the passions of what I have to create. And everything has that kind of through line of something that, you know, the community engaged in helping talk about as it was built. And where you, if you want to go put a spin on it to make it your own, I'm saying, cool, like that, that's completely fine. I, I want you to do that. Like the things that I, the ideas I'm coming up with like belong to the internet at large. What's your timeline for that? Is that something you're gonna launch this year? Uh yeah, for sure. So we're we're gonna have products out here in probably the next 90 days. Uh so we have a bunch of stuff already made, a bunch of stuff in production, and it's really just kind of carefully thinking through like how we want to do it. But like most things, I usually end up I'll make these ornate plans, and then really the best plan when you look at it is to just start putting things out and iterate, uh, because that's how the internet works best now.
0: hundred percent. One of the things, you know, like when we first started this, we were still probably in uh, in like early 2020. We were probably in like the waning days of the concept of the bland, the Helvetica text, the, you know, the muted pastel color palette. And I feel like we're heading into a new era. I think, I don't know if it was you or another influencer. I saw a video on Burberry and how Burberry was sort of signaling this launch from a minimalist brand into this maximalist yeah, was, ornate uh, like was, night caricature. Yeah, the, uh, the
1: heritage maximalism brand uh, <laughs> video. Yeah. 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 Is
0: that a trend you see? Do you think do you see people going, and a lot of the new fresher brands are, are like, you don't see a lot of blends launched these days. There are a lot of people pushing the boundaries in terms of aesthetic. What, what What's your advice on ter- in terms of that kind of aesthetic?
1: Yeah. My advice is literally just make it interesting. Like you don't have to necessarily go full maximalism or for whatever, but it's just like anything that is just, like just dead simple, pastel color, couple looks at that, like is just you know, uh, doesn't have that same, you're not using all the tools you have to be able to appropriately tell your story. And in some cases it might be the perfect look for you, but in most of the cases it's not. And really the exercise I recommend doing for most people is like go to a shelf in a store that sells the things that you're gonna sell, whether it's electronic, whether it's clothing, whether it's CPG, whatever it is, or someplace that sells the majority of what you're doing or the branding you have. And if, if it's digital, pull a bunch of the different websites. And literally look at what everyone else is doing and put your mock-ups next to it. And it's like, cool. Does it jump out on the shelf there? Is it significantly different? And is it different in a way that has longevity? And that should be the kind of the way that guides, you know, like the brand from there. What's your take on Yeezy? Is Yeezy going to be a,
0: a, as culturally relevant a force in terms of fashion as he was in the like 2010s?
1: Maybe you might not get back to that level, but will certainly be a force. And one thing I thought was interesting about this latest release, um, I did a video about it on, on TikTok is like their current team, which I, it now is sort of like some a, a group of wild folks inside like a warehouse somewhere is still doing incredible design work. Like they are the two new form factors they drop. They drop a slide form factor that fits together like an egg. They drop the valley the flats that kind of fold up and fold down. In footwear, we see silhouettes. We don't see like real design come out. And I think that as long as they keep taking that approach and are fanatically obsessed about it, they have to be in the conversation and they are driving things in an interesting way. And maybe it's not the unavoidable cultural moment of the like, of like the three fifties and stuff. But like, I think it will still be a, a major part of the conversation as long as they keep releasing. I think it was, it was also you that drew attention to the fact that they like were nimble enough to like
0: shift the focus on these flats specifically from uh, of a shoe that would appeal to, you know, men as well as women to really focus dialing it in, to have it focus more on women. Cause like I could see that it's just interesting to see a brand like pivot that quickly.
1: Yeah, it was, it's a great, uh, it, it's funny to see, like if you're a big brand, you have a strategy when it comes out and it's hard to really pivot from that strategy fast. And they're literally like looking at Instagram comments, like moment 10 of their thing launching, being like, oh, we're just gonna change the marketing of this. And I think that's how brands need to look at it. And I think about this all the time. Um, a, a rant I have, I haven't done a full video on it, I got one, got one written, but I haven't put it out yet, the, uh, about like big brands play by the small brands rules now. You, you look at it, if, if you're a massive brand, you go, oh, I, I can post on social media once or twice a day. Like, like, no, like that's a, that's what smaller brands have to do. If you are, if you have the budget, you can have as many accounts as you want back to like the tabs chocolate point you could have, there could be 15 Reebok accounts. that are popping out there and you can be posting on, if you have a million followers, millions of followers as one of those brands, it doesn't hurt you to be posting as long as it's consistent, like four times a day, if the content's good. And you see that from the curator accounts, like hidden and stuff like that. They can, they post a lot and the content still hits because it's interesting and not everyone sees every post. And I just think they're playing by like someone else's rule book. I'm like, you don't need to play by that rule book. You have more resources, you have more content. You're spending all these teams, these marketing dollars to put out one social post a day is like almost criminally dumb on the part of most of these large uh, organizations from a social strategy. And so I think that as soon as some people figure that out, the whole landscape is
0: gonna shift. That's super neat. Are there any brand? What like what? Are, what are the brands out there that you sort of personally stand for the hardest? Are there any that you're you're waiting on their their fall you know their their winter releases here?
1: Um, there is a uh, yeah. So it goes, there's a couple a couple brands I really like. Uh, so there's an interiors brand called GoHar World that I really enjoy. Um, there is a fashion brand called PDF Channel that um, that I really like. That's just at least doing interesting things with like processes and looks. I'm like peeking around my my house as I look through this stuff. But my friend Brandon has an interior brand called Blanked that I, I really enjoy. Um, Libero, which is a, a small menswear brand. I really like, um, there's, uh, I probably pronounced it wrong. I think it's Libro, but, uh, yeah, there's, there's tons of brands I'm interested in, in all kinds of spaces. Uh, Experiment Beauty in an, is another one in the beauty space I was learning about where it's like a really exciting brand. And it's like, it's a like chemistry backed. Um, there's just, yeah, there's just lots of interesting things happening. I think we have no lack of interesting brands kind of worth following right now. Uh, one thing I ask everybody these days is what's a part of your tech stack that you couldn't, uh, live without. Oh, uh, no- Notion for sure. We're running everything out of Notion. Like I just put out a report about social media trends today. It's all in Notion. I did a, a, a massive like research report um, with my team for a uh, like a retail chain recently. And it's all just it's all just in Notion. We run cut 30 out of Notion. All my personal notes, and my scripts and social calendars out of there, um, especially once they added the AI features. Um, and I'm going to beta. I don't even know if this is 100% live yet. So hopefully I'm not ruining any secrets or anything like that. But there's one where like you can query your space with the AI bot so I can just ask a question to where all my stuff is, and it will like give me an answer. Which is like, when you're doing something like Cut30 where you have like, OK, we have hundreds of resources of different videos and how to do this or how to do that, and it's like, hey, make me a plan for X and Y, and it will pull from the doc and give you an answer. I was like, oh, like that's a super useful tool for me. I definitely can't live with that. Very cool. Uh,
0: here's here's just a question. If uh, this is something I ask mainly to DTC brand f- founders, which, you know, you're you're about to launch this brand. If I were to give you a $50,000 grant to, for your launch uh, on top of whatever you're planning to spend on your launch, how would you
1: how would you deploy that? Um, so uh, well, I'm about to do something relatively similar. So um, I would be getting multiple short form creators uh, doing like doing dedicated videos. You know, there's whole kinds of the, like specifically around it. Um, and I'd, I'd pair that with like one relatively one relatively large influencer. A couple of those social creators are making specific videos on TikTok itself. Um, and then and then a bunch of seeding. and I'd really focus on pure organic, the hard part about like you're paying that money is like you can do a launch videos now that cost a couple hundred dollars, right? So I'll be putting a couple hundred dollars into video production, one marquee influencer that kind of is a, a grade above what people would expect you to have, um, a lot of supporting seating, and then good short form content creators who are making like 20, 30 vids. So we have like a really strong month of consistent performing short form come out and just come out of the gate really hard.
0: And this isn't this isn't just UGC. This is this is more narrative based. This is stuff that's like built into exactly. their have your own in, account into what they're specifically it, talking about.
1: Yeah, exactly. Where have them like so? Uh, so having them create twenty videos for you, it's not like UGC. It's like make a narrative, like make make us videos in this style. And then on TikTok in particular, if you do that and do that the right way, you can begin getting attention really quickly. But like, yeah, it would all be content, content and influence. Like, I don't think there's anything else to be a part of that launch stack. Like, if you are doing any ad spend at all, it would be like light retargeting based on that. But I don't even think you'd have to do it. Very cool, nice. Well, if you're not
0: following Oren, you gotta find him on uh, all the social medias. Oren meets world. That's a boy meets world reference.
1: Uh, it is for better or for worse.
0: Yeah, classic. Uh love it. Find him. Find him on all these places. Oren meets world on Instagram, on Twitter as well. And and if I, I just feel like 2024 is the year that I think almost everyone in this audience needs to like at least seriously consider creating short form video, whether it's for their brand or their personal brand. So get uh, get cut thirty on your radar as well, because I know you guys will be running that again.
1: Yeah, for sure. Cut30.co. We run cohorts roughly every 45 days or so. But uh, yeah, and then shoot me a DM. If you have any questions on anything, anytime, I'm around.
0: All right. Thanks, brother. Thanks so much for listening to today's episode. If you're not a subscriber to our newsletter, you can do that right now at direct-to-consumer, all one word, dot .co. I'm Eric Dick, and this has been the D2C Podcast. We'll see you next time.